A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a classic battle waged, led by a group of rebels who dared to think differently, engaging in disciplined practice that would ultimately yield them the power to transcend time, space, and physical limitations. As Yoda might say, talking about the Jedi we are? As is the GLGU way, we have one foot firmly planted in the world of education, which means the answer is, yeah, but we are also talking about a different kind of training, teaching new readers. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Grounded Learners Guild, the podcast that gets real about education, authentic leadership, and the transcendent power of being a part of a highly functioning team. Here are your very own guildmates and hosts, Casey Veach, Emily Coakland, and me, Jenny Labrie. In the last 10 years, over 30 states have enacted policy related to evidence-based reading instruction, and a lot has been changing in our schools as a result. As we've discussed in several past episodes, bringing about monumental change in education is never as black and white as Imperial Army versus Rebel Alliance, leaving educators and families alike with more questions than a young Luke Skywalker. So with this episode, it's our intention to bring a guest with great expertise in the field of evidence-based reading practices, Dr. Amy Stewart, to clear up some of these questions and unpack some strategies that are proven to have an impact when our young Padawans are on their journey to become readers. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining us and tuning in to our very first guest of season four. I've had the privilege to connect with Dr. Amy Stewart several times over the last two years in my role as Director of Professional Learning, and I'm so excited to share her with our listeners, but also the really impactful information about how we as people learn to read and how we as educators and even parents can leverage some of those things. So. Dr. Amy Stewart. I will call you Dr. Stewart if you want me to, but I know you as Amy. Um, <laughs> Amy, will you tell us a little bit about you and how you found your way into this work? Sure, sure. Well, like you said, I'm Amy Stewart. I am currently the literacy coordinator and coach for a small district in the North Shore of Chicago. And I've been in a literacy support role, kind of like this one, for several years now. But my heart is truly in the classroom. In my heart, I'm a kindergarten teacher. Um, I've taught kindergarten. I've taught third grade. Um, so I've never really left that classroom teacher mindset, which I think is good in, when you're in a literacy support role such as mine. And I have been working with the science of reading and learning how the brain learns to read and all of the kind of science behind how people in general learn to read for about five years now and do a lot of professional development with school districts and regional offices of education mm-hmm. and have connected with just a lot of educators in Illinois and beyond helping kind of better understand the noise around the science of reading movement and we're hearing it more and more come up in mainstream media and just kind of helping districts kind of figure out one what that means 
And for teachers, like how do we practically implement that in our classrooms, in our spaces without throwing out everything that we've already done? So kind of affirming practices that have been in place, but also thinking about how we could shift some of those practices to make them more aligned to the evidence. So that's kind of the work that I do both in my, I guess, my my day job and my my side gigs as well. And then uh, I have two little girls at home. What They're one and three. And so one navigating the ups and downs of toddlerhood but also learning to read is going to be coming up in my personal life as yeah. well. So just kind of being up on things is, is good for me, both personally and professionally right now. And one of the things, Amy, that I just wanted to na- notice and name here, which I think is what has made some of your training so powerful for folks, is you still have that classroom teacher lens and can really help translate these are the things you do and these are the steps you can take to really lean in to what those research-based practices are. So I love that you brought that lens because I think that's what makes your work with us so powerful. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, as teachers, we all know, like we've sat in PDs where it's like, okay, like I would rather be working in my classroom and, and the things that I take away the most are like, what can I do tomorrow, you know, and right. and what are the things that like I myself can like do make change um, in an engaging way. And so I try to make sure that I am like that accessible to teachers in that way. It's perfect for a coach. So jumping into, I guess, the wars part of things here, um, there's been a lot of discussion of reading in the science of reading and evidence-based practices in the media. And public media has been, you know, shedding a light on the different ways that reading has been taught in the past and that reading is currently being taught and the recommendations that folks are making. And there's educators falling on both sides of this issue, several sides of this issue, and they're really passionate about what they believe in. Would you be able to describe those two camps for us? Yes. And before I do that, I do want to kind of call out, there's a new book from Julia Lindsay called Reading Above the Fray. And it's part of this Science of Reading series that's edited by Nell Duke. And the reason I bring this up is that the foreword in Reading Above the Fray, Nell Duke writes, and she says, we need to stop thinking about it like we're choosing a side. Oh, we yeah. need to, it's not like I'm this or I'm this. She's like, I'm not asking you to do that when you read this book. That's part of the Science of Reading series. Um, she says, I'm asking you to align with the research. And what does mm-hmm. the research tell us? And so instead of being like, oh, we're this, we're this, it's more of what does the research say? And and what are the practices on both sides that perhaps can be you know, used moving forward? So I just like to kind of keep that mm-hmm. in mind when... This is a hot issue. People have like really passionate, deep-rooted feelings about the way they've been trained, trainings that they've gone to, people that they love, learning from. So I think that was a nice way to put it. It's like, I'm not asking you to, to pick a side or to fight with each other. It's just we really need to just honor the research and look at the research. So I like that. I like that from Nell Duke. Um, with that being said, two camps, you have your balanced literacy on the one end, and then you have your science of reading people on the other side, which um, when we say science of reading, the science of reading movement, people say like, oh, I'm science of reading aligned. They're really talking about a structured literacy. So if we're talking about one camp is balanced literacy, the other camp would be your science of reading or your structured literacy. So in balanced literacy, just kind of what it sounds like, a balance of various instructional practices from shared reading, guided reading, vocabulary instruction, word work, phonics, with a structure that's most often a mini lesson of some kind, 10 to 15 minutes, and then independent work time where your students would practice 
a lot of workshop model type of things go into that balanced literacy approach with the idea that the teacher would teach this lesson, the students kind of go off and do it on their own right then. And a big focus too on like individual conferring or small group conferences with students too. So if you hear like workshop model or the use of leveled readers, leveled text, that's a big thing in the balanced literacy world as well. So that's kind of what you're getting in terms of the balanced literacy side of things. Um, Whereas if you're the science of reading side, that structured literacy side, they're more focused on the idea that in order to read, there needs to be structured, explicit, systematic instruction in foundational skills are in all of the components of reading um, with a focus on Nancy Young's ladder of reading. So all kids can learn to read, but the science of reading camp is really kind of thinking about, well, why don't they, you know, or why aren't they learning to read? If, if, if so many kids can, you know, 95% of kids can learn to read without, you know, any sort of severe intervention or programming then why aren't they? And I think that's the question that's kind of coming to the forefront is, you know, with the Soul of Story podcast and everything, if this is the case, then why are so many children in America not able to read? And I think that's kind of the question that's driving the science of reading movement. So when we're thinking about, you know, what structured literacy means, there's a huge focus and you'll hear like around phonics and phonemic awareness, but it goes beyond that to more like, okay, we've got our phonics, our phonemic awareness, but what really are we doing with those sound symbol relationships? And it goes beyond that to, you know, syllable work, morphology, and all sort of a systematic sequential way. Whereas if you're, if you're thinking about balanced literacy, not to say that it's like a mishmash of things, but it's kind of not as explicit in terms of like, what skills you're teaching or what kinds of things you're teaching in a certain order. You'll hear some sometimes from balanced literacy of it. We want kids to love reading and we want kids to love writing and they're writers and they're authors and they're readers. And of course, like, you know, structured literacy wants that too. I mean, who doesn't want their kids to love to read? But I think when you're thinking of more of a structured literacy approach, it's like, Yes, we want them to love it, but how how can they love it if they mm-hmm. can't do it, right? So right. thinking about building that love into, but also, you know, giving them the tools that they need in order to be able to do something in order to love it, if that makes sense. It so does. those are kind of the two camps that you're, you're working with now. I do, too, want to lampshade the fact that we have, for this particular series of episodes we're doing, Amy, we're going to be playing with a Star Wars metaphor <laughs> a little bit. And Perfect. as you're describing the two camps... I think of the structured literacy as the training, Luke Skywack. Skywack. Wow. I was just going to. I'm not going to finish that. But Luke Skywalker was doing with Yoda, like very regimented, very strict and explicit. But we really don't see him becoming the true Jedi that he is until he shows up in all black in Return of the Jedi. So that's kind of the the connection I'm making to our metaphor here. He eventually gets sick and tired of the rote and the routines that he does with Yoda. And it's through that love of the force, which I see we all want kids to learn how to read and to enjoy mm-hmm. reading. But I, that's kind of one of the parallels that I was able to make as I was hearing you describe those two. It's not really about the empire. It's how do we really get everybody to harness the force inside themselves to read. 
Amy, mm-hmm. I really love what you're talking about when you say, you know, what does the research say? What is evidence telling us to be able to find a, an approach that's not heavily one side or the other, right? And I think about that research and also the science behind things. And I'm still very much learning. I'm clearly taking notes as you're talking. I love all of this stuff. And, you know, our next question is talking about like thinking about the brain and how it's hardwired. If you didn't know, Amy, I am a, a world language teacher, so I speak multiple languages. So I, I've learned language acquisition theory wow. and and so what it means to speak versus what it means to write in another language as well. It's just the way our brains are hardwired for speech is different than reading, right? And if you could talk to a little bit about uh, Scarbo's reading rope, and I've learned, I, I think the colors are beautiful, and it's something that really does a nice job for somebody like me, for layman's terms of like describing what it looks like for our brains when we're trying to read. But then if there's any other research that's up and coming or any other things that you would like to highlight to tell us a little bit more about what it looks like to learn to read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you bring up a good point of like, look, when you look at Scarborough's rope and all of the things that go into learning how to read and how they fit together, like we as adults, I think, take for granted or we forget like what it was like to learn to read. So when we're working with young children or, you know, children of any age who are struggling to read, we forget kind of all that's going on because it's so automatic for us. So I like that you brought that up. But um, when we're talking about Scarborough's rope, so Basically, you have sort of two thick strands that are going to come together eventually to create a skilled reader, to create reading comprehension. So you have your word recognition side of the rope, which is your phonics, your phonemic awareness, your decoding, your sight recognition. Um, All of that is sort of the bottom twines, strands of the rope. And then your language comprehension, there are I think five different components. So that would be like your background knowledge, your grammar, your syntax, your verbal reasoning and vocabulary. And as those things get stronger, as you get more skilled in those things, the idea is that those things become increasingly systematic and increasingly automatic so that they're not just just like phrase of the rope as I do this with my fingers that no one can see. <laughs> we do it all um, the time. No worries. Um, yes, there we go. That they're not just like random sprayed strays, but they're kind of braided together and more tightly woven. So that kind of signifies the automaticity or the the skills that have been built and kind of woven together. That's been kind of the the graphic along with a simple view of reading that's sort of driven the science of reading movement. And you'll see kind of those everywhere if you're if you're reading or doing any sort of work with the science of reading but uh this sounds like a nell duke fangirl account <laughs> but um nell duke and hilly cartwright she's got a whole pass everyone with, um in 2020 <laughs> i know i know right but they have in 2021 came out with the active model of reading which really is more of a reader-centered model and takes into account all of the things that scarborough's rope does so they have word recognition they have um the language comprehension pieces but they also have this piece called called active self-regulation, which deals with things like motivation and executive functioning and all of those things that sort of underpin reading comprehension that are sort of invisible. And and those kinds of things are, are often the what's missing for students who you have a reader, you just can't quite pinpoint like where the disconnect is. But this model takes into account all of those things that are sort of unseen and sort of brings those to the forefront as part of what make successful reading comprehension. So I would say that's kind of the model that I turn to now. Um, I think like Scarborough's Rope, love it, still use it. 
and refer to it often, but I think the new one, the active model of reading has been an eye opener. And in terms of, I think with some of the gaps we're seeing still from from our, our COVID years of the executive functioning and the motivation and just the ability to sort of, you know, self-regulate and sustain yourself for a period of time reading and thinking is an important piece to to consider. So I'm glad that, that that's out there in the world now. The complexity is clear when you describe it even and and that visual even though we didn't see the fingers but like you just think of all of the twines and the things necessary in order for us to be able to put reading together and then add on to that I love what you're talking about and bringing in some of those more holistic pieces of motivation and the things that I'm starting to wonder because I have a second grader who struggled a lot last year with his first you know first grade is that from what I'm learning is that that mm-hmm. hinge point of a year it is such a critical year for reading and he struggled mm-hmm. so much and, and was in some mm-hmm. reading interventions and and now I, even hearing you talk I need to go in and look more into what, what was that was it Narduk is that what you said did I write it down Nelduk, oh, Nelduk. yeah um, because yeah. Mm-hmm. I do wonder if it has some of something to do with the executive functioning skills and the, the attention span that he mm-hmm. also is working through to be able to sustain those complex reading skills that you're describing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the three executive skills that we're working on that are most closely linked to reading comprehension are that working memory piece, being able to kind of hold information in your mind as you're reading a sentence or reading a paragraph or a passage, like are are you retaining things that happened previously? And that inhibition, can you kind of block out things around you? Can you really sit Mm -hmm. and concentrate? And the third one is escaping me right now, but I'll think of it. (laughs) I'm going to be Googling it while while you're still talking. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Uh, It's going to come to me when I least expect it. So you've mentioned a few of them in kind of our early conversations, phonemic awareness and phonics. As a secondary teacher, like surprisingly, secondary English teacher, I was not trained in literally how to teach kids to read. And so can you describe a little bit for our listeners what those five component parts of reading are and how they kind of work together really to make that skilled reader? Like what is the research telling us? Yeah. And I I think you bring up to a good point, Casey, of like, we weren't taught this, you know, like Mm -hmm. many of us have multiple degrees in literacy and English Mm -hmm. and whatever, and no one was taught in college how to teach someone to read. And so I think that's also coming to the forefront now of like, what are we doing to, you know, in our teacher prep now to really kind of hit this problem before it becomes a bigger problem, right? So mm-hmm. I, I think that's something important that you bring up. Like all of us are kind of in the same boat. Like, why didn't we learn this? You know, we yeah. should know this already. And so that's a an interesting point just to kind of bring up that it, it's not part of teacher prep, but where it wasn't, you know, when many of us mm-hmm. were going. And now I think the tides are kind of shifting and there's more, you know, research aligned how kids learn to read for especially like early childhood educators and educators of ELA. So I think that we're moving in the right direction. Awesome. Yeah. So the five areas of reading are the five components of reading. So we have our phonemic awareness, which is the ability to hear sounds and sort of isolate sounds, manipulate sounds. So um, you're doing activities and phonemic awareness, like blending words together, like I'll give you three sounds, cat, you blend them together, cat, or I'll give you the word cat and you segment it, cat. A lot of that kind of work, a lot of changing sounds, here's the word cat, 
change cat to bat? Um, what mm-hmm. sound would you change? And things like that. All oral. The many school districts for phonemic awareness across the country use the Hegarty Phonemic Awareness Program, which is all oral phonemic awareness teacher-led kind of back and forth call and response kind of things where the students are blending, segmenting, isolating, substituting, um, things like that. The, the latest research, though, is kind of attaching letters to that. So phonemic awareness just orally, fine. Phonemic awareness when you t- attach it to the letters and you'd have the letters in front of you while you're manipulating them is more powerful than just just doing that orally. So when you're attaching letters to things, that kind of gets into the, the second component of reading, which would be phonics. So phonics is that sound symbol correspondence. While phonemic awareness is we're hearing, we're speaking, phonics is attaching the print to it. So if I am doing the sounds for cat, at, now I can read the word cat. I'm putting the print into what I'm practicing. So kind of like that speech to print model, like phonemic awareness is sort of that underpinning, can we hear the sounds? You know, if we can't hear the sounds, if we don't have any awareness of them, then we don't know, you know, how to read them, how to spell them, because our minds don't have sort of mental parking spaces for those letters if we can't hear the sounds that are there. So phonics is all about matching the letters to the sounds that we hear, both in reading and then in spelling. And then with that, as you get increasingly stronger with your ability to match sound symbol symbol correspondences, we get fluency, which fluency can be sort of two parts. We think of fluency as like automaticity with our individual word readings, like how fast or how fluently can we sound out individual words or individual sentences. But then also when you're reading longer pieces of text, like how how does your reading sound? How, how quickly are you reading? What's your pace? What's your phrase? Are you attending to punctuation? Things like that. So that fluency piece is really a bridge between the word recognition and your comprehension is that fluency is kind of underpins all of that are kind of goes with both of those things. And then vocabulary is the fourth component. I believe we're on number four. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And that is just attaching meaning to words. So we can read the words, we can, we can hear the sounds, we can read the words. Now we're, we're figuring out what those words mean and building sort of our, uh, our brains, you know, dictionary, I guess, as we're increasing the amount of words that we know. And vocabulary development is sort of incremental, meaning in the early years or when we're first learning words, we're learning the meaning of a lot of words very fast. But as we get older, it kind of slows down. We know we have a lot of the meanings of words in our brains already, um, but we might be learning like new ways to use certain words. So that's like kind of in the beginning, it's fast mapping. And then as you get older and know more, it's slower, but you're going kind of deeper into words, meanings and nuances and things like that. So that's vocabulary. And then finally, comprehension, which is, you know, the overarching goal of reading is that you're understanding what you're reading and you're kind of transacting and interacting with what you're reading. So when those words on the page become ideas in your mind or things that you're thinking of as you're reading, are you able to understand, just to put it in the in the easiest terms, are you understanding what you're reading? And that's that's kind of the end goal of of everything, of Scarborough's Robe, of the simple view of reading, is that reading comprehension piece. So that would be the final kind of culmination is that reading comprehension. One of the things that I just had like a light bulb moment was hearing you describe the differences between phonemic awareness and phonics, like that sound linked to the print. Because sometimes I'm like, I know they're two different things, but I could never articulate it. So I love that 
little light bulb that you gave me. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, just phonemic awareness, think sounds, phoneme sounds, and then phonics is, you know, as you, you know, I, I come from, a, I was a phonics girl and when I was growing up. So I just remember like the phonics workbook where we would read and, you know, do all the things. So yes, phonics is the reading piece of it. You know, you were a phonics girl growing up. I, I truly believe that I grew up in the balance literacy when it was in its heyday because I will notice a name and lampshade. I was one of those striving readers. Like by second grade, my parents were having meetings with my teacher. Oh, she'll get it. She'll get it. I still need like a online dictionary to like speak words to me because I can't do that really foundational decoding unless I have cemented that word in my memory. It already has its parking spot. I really struggle with that decoding piece. So, yeah, just lampshading that fact right now. <laughs> I'm a striving reader, too. I love it. I was thinking as you were talking there, Amy, the I can't help but make connections to the world language classroom. And when I was teaching Spanish and this even just learning Spanish myself. And as you went through those five, I've even seen students where they're able, you know, they have the phonemic awareness, they have the phonics, they have the fluency to read. They have the vocabulary-ish to read in their second language, but the comprehension is not there. So it's just really interesting how it's very, the sequence that you're talking about is it really does build upon itself. And it's just interesting that I try and think of that in like my first language is if I don't have those other things, I'm not going to comprehend. Like if I don't have that vocabulary, I can't comprehend what I'm reading. I could read until the cows come home. I could read a word after word in Spanish. But if I don't know what those words are, then I could just be reading for nothing. And I wonder about our littles who are feeling that in their first language, right? When they don't have those building blocks and they don't have that vocabulary is like that comprehension is just it takes so much to get there to get to that final piece of comprehension. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that I forgot to mention in the in the science of reading sort of camp or that structured literacy camp is there's a, a real focus now on knowledge building and mm -hmm. starting at like in kindergarten. And when I say knowledge building, building basically in a sense, it's having kind of theme-based or unit-based instruction where students are reading and writing on topics yeah. instead of just reading and writing different books, you know, working on main idea here, working on compare and contrast here we're learning about apples let's say in kindergarten and we're we're learning you know how apples grow and all of our reading and our writing are sort of connected into a theme so that we're building knowledge in a sequential and systematic way from kindergarten to 12th grade so that that comprehension piece you know when they're reading a text on you know something nonfiction or something that they have some sort of a prior knowledge or background knowledge leg to stand on to kind of aid their comprehension because I think what we're what we we're seeing is that you know with every great intention like teachers were working on you know main idea or character traits but just kind of in isolation or with random texts and and with this kind of knowledge building curriculum or a curriculum that kind of has more of a information focus the goal would then be that they're building that knowledge which aids in their comprehension throughout their schooling so that they're not kind of always expected to have background knowledge because I know especially with our you know our language learners and um, students who don't have those like rich life experiences you know they are the ones who who suffer and with not that they can't learn to read they just don't have those same experiences so with a knowledge building curriculum it sort of levels the playing field for everybody kind of bringing everybody up to the same same spot and with the 
with the information that they're bringing to the table. Well, and it's multiple exposures to those vocabulary words. I forget the statistic, but in some of the research that I've done, you need to say and engage with a word like at least 12, if not more. I mm-hmm. can't remember the exact number. Help me out, Amy, if you know it, in order to I really have it build yeah. that parking lot, mm-hmm. you know, so the more mm-hmm. exposure increases that stickiness. Yeah. And I just, I just love like all of us are making these connections, kind of watching our, our little ones. We're, we are all parents of little kiddos as well. I have two seven year olds, so I've been watching them go through this as well. And then I'm so glad you brought up this knowledge building part because it's nice to see that there are ways of getting other content knowledge where it might have been put into social studies or put into science in the past, but they're able to integrate reading and reading practices throughout that type of instruction. So like my, my kids were doing knowledge building. It was all about Hawaii. So they were learning about the native mm-hmm. culture and they were learning about the language and they mm-hmm. were learning about the geography. And so there were, it was a lot of very, what you would normally ascribe to social studies curriculum. But in truth, it was mm-hmm. knowledge building reading. I could see it in how you described it. So I really love that you were able to draw that connection for us. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I'm really happy that we've managed to connect here is all of our responsibility to our to our readers, old or young, in helping them be successful. So I guess along those lines, there I would really like to know that no matter how old a student is, if they're struggling to decode, what are some strategies or routines that any teacher, any age could try to help a student decode? I would say one would definitely be just like a phonemic awareness routine, you know, 10 minutes a day of here are some words that we're going to practice and we're going to isolate some sounds. We're going to blend some words together. We're going to segment words. We're going to take words apart. You know, we're going to substitute different sounds. Like the first step is being able to kind of hear those sounds. And if you're speaking those sounds, then that's the first step, right? And if you can isolate kind of those sounds and pick them out individually, change them up, you know, blend and segment, then we can attach the print to it. So so before anything else, I would say a strong phonemic awareness routine. And, and in, you know, K-1-2, it's typically, you know, 10 minutes a day. So I would say start there would be, would be number one. You know, it seems, you know, especially for, you know, older readers or adult readers, it seems silly, but it really is kind of where that, reading starts. And it's something that we all know how to do. Um, You know, we all can speak. And so let's, let's take what we can do and sort of manipulate it in a way that we can then kind of work with it to help us learn to read. So I would say that would be one. Another one would be um, some dictation or sound spelling work. So this typically kind of sounds like a spelling test, but having some grid paper or spaces where students could write letters, but break them apart by sound. So like if I'm doing the word break, so first we would tap it out, b or ache, and then we'd say, oh, how many sounds do you hear in the word break? B, er, ache, I hear four sounds. So we're gonna fill four sound boxes or four boxes on our grid paper. So that lets me know that, okay, B, B is gonna go in one box, er, R is gonna go in the other one. And when I hear that A sound in the word break, it's made with two letters. Those are gonna go in the same box. E and A are gonna go in the same box, they make one sound. And then K will go in that fourth box so that you're, teaching students to hear the sounds and then know the letter patterns for those sounds. So they're not kind of just trying to spell a big word just, you know, by what they hear. They're really attending to, okay, I know the sounds for this. I'm learning the EA says A pattern. And I'm working on that 
in a really guided specific way where there's like error correction kind of right on the spot. So typically um, with dictation, we do anywhere from, you know, two to five words a day that are focused on the letter pattern that we are learning or the syllable, syllable pattern that we're learning, but really the focus on like that grid paper of where do I put my letters? Those are like the parking spaces for the sounds. And then having some kind of sentence dictation to go along with it. So words and sentence dictation, because I think what we're finding is that with the science of reading movement has come this big push on phonics and and students can read the words, but they're spelling, they still are not spelling the words because there's not really that encoding piece or that transfer to writing piece yet. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I try to incorporate in all the phonics work that I do is some sort of writing where students have to use what we're learning, not only to read the words, but also to, to write and spell the words too, so that that piece doesn't fall through the cracks. I think especially after second grade, we see like, great, they can read all of these words. What does their writing look like? And they can't mm-hmm. spell anywhere near what they can read. And so to kind of close that gap, some really guided dictation and spelling work, I think is important for anybody who's learning to read, learning to spell. It can be really powerful. The process that you described with breaking the sounds into the different sound groups. First of all, that made my the visual part of my brain so happy, just thinking of like the little boxes <laughs> and breaking the sounds. Like, it just so, oh, yes. it makes so much sense. It's so systematic. So I love that. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. do you, Amy, or, you know, when you're helping teachers, you talk about some of the professional learning that you have done. Do you follow a specific curriculum? Like, how do you choose which words students are doing that with? Is it customized and personalized for each student, depending on what they're struggling with? Does that happen in an intervention tier two? Is that more tier one and you have a curriculum that guides you? How do you make those determinations? Yeah, so typically when I work with different schools in different districts, they have a foundational skills program of some kind, typically. And so any sort of dictation work can fit into the scope and sequence of what what that program would be. So it doesn't matter kind of what program you have. You can always fold in some dictation. So what I do is I say, okay, what's your skill this week? Short A, great. All of the words can come from the what's already in okay. your book, right? But you're just going to you know, have a different piece of paper or have work, working on spelling on this grid paper instead of in your workbook or instead of you know on the worksheet that's there, we're going to be doing some spelling but using any of the words that go with the pattern that is in your scope and sequence. If you don't have a scope and sequence, I can help you with that. <laughs> no, um, typically, most districts will have like we're, what skills we're teaching in which grade level. So, and there are a lot of, I forget the name of the book, but there's like the, the book of phonics word list or something like that. So uh, that's not the name of it, but it's something like that. Mm -hmm. And so I know in that book, there's tons of lists of things. So if if all you have is like, we're working on short A, Google, great resource, but just pick out, you know, five words we're going to do this week or five words we're going to do today. I love that. I'm speaking from the parent lens. (laughs) So I don't have a scope. (laughs) Yeah. Asking for a friend or anything. Yeah. The one thing that I was wondering, Amy, you were talking about like those patterns. So we're teaching this particular sound or that this pattern or even like if you think of certain words together or letters together, like the T and the R or the T and the H, those create this different pattern. Do you have a resource that you ever recommend for that pattern or that sound pattern that you were describing? Um. I would again say I asking have one for a friend. Particular, no, no, I hear you. 
typically um, any program that you would get. So like, let's say we use like Sadlier's from phonics to reading, but there's 95% group, there's, you know, wit and wisdom, there's foundations, all of them have sort of the scope and sequence of like, okay, we're going to teach the digraph TH, you know, Mm -hmm. today. And, and here's, that makes one sound, you know, digraph, um, two letters that make one sound. And it kind of will explain all of that to you. But I have just like in my, in my files, I have Mm -hmm. lots of different kind of order of thing or order of the way that you would teach letter patterns mm-hmm. but there's not really one that's like this is the science of reading like sure. scope yeah. and sequence right it's kind of similar across the board but everyone puts their different little flair oh, on little it. spin i learned mm-hmm. a new word today y'all i learned that digraph is the t and the h <laughs> together i feel so special learning things new every day there you go so then your blend would be t or tr like you said like two letters that still keep their own sound is a blend. I love that. And I I think what you're talking about here also shows the universality of the strategy. So like when we're asking you, what are three strategies or routines that you want to highlight? You're you're doing high leverage strategies that are going to, regardless of the scope and sequence, regardless of the setting or the environment the student is in, these are strategies that are, that are really going to work. And so that, that leads us into the, our mm-hmm. next question that goes along the lines of, again, strategies or hacks that you think really do have that universal component at work in just so many different environments. And and what does that look like in terms of fluency then? What are some of those strategies, three favorites you might have? Oh, yes. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> only three? Um, so, <laughs> yes. How much time do you have? <laughs> I think fluency tends to kind of get lost in the, it's nowhere really in the and in Scarborough's rope, it's nowhere really like yep. called out explicitly in the active model of reading. But you know, what we know about fluency is that it's part of decoding, and it's part of comprehension. So your fluency in decoding aids your fluency in comprehension, because the way that you read, and how you're phrasing and how your how your prosody is, is going to make a difference in, in what you're understanding. And and if you're attending to punctuation and, and, and all of those things. So it's there, but it's not there. You know what I mean? <laughs> or it's not there, but it's there. So I think because it's it's sort of this like nuanced component of reading, I think it there's there's also sort of a fluency where like, do we teach fluency? Do we not teach fluency? Is it important? Is it not important? And are, will it just happen naturally? And I think what is coming out is that it is important to teach fluency. Yes, it will come the more you work on phonemic awareness and phonics. One would be like paired audio. So having a student, having students listen to models of fluent reading. So whether that be like they're reading along a book club book with audio that is following along with their reading. There's also many different technology tools that can read along like Epic or Tumble Books or Reading A to Z has that paired audio feature that could read along with the students. So so they're not just listening, they're reading and trying to stay with the model of fluent reading. So I would say that would be one that can span all grade levels and give you that broad spectrum. Another good one is just repeated readings, having something that the student can read independently and reading it over and over again, reading, having a poetry notebook and, and reading those poems throughout the year, or having something where they're keeping short pieces of text or passages that they can refer to that maybe have like funny voices or funny punctuation or that are just more engaging for mm-hmm. students and having them read with a partner, read by themselves. 
and hear you read it. I think one of the biggest, the biggest factors influence you is just hearing models of good reading. Yeah. So my last one would just be read aloud, picking an engaging picture books, chapter books, and and you're the model of fluent reading for students and they're hearing what books sound like. And then even if they can't yet conventionally read the book that you're reading, they can pick it up and they can sound like you, right? They can know, they know what happens on, on this page and they can, they can read it in a way that you read it and you kind of hear them mimic the way that you're reading. And that can be the most powerful tool for parents and for teachers. As teachers, we read to our kids all the time. At home, we read to our kids all the time, but just kind of knowing that you're that model of fluent reading. And, and when you do different intonations with your voice, like your, your kids are hearing how to make sense of reading and how to make sense of the punctuation and the words and the, and the grouping of words on a page. Amy, on behalf of all of us here at GLG, I am just so grateful for you spending the last 45 minutes with us, giving this foundational knowledge. We are going to actually take some of this and, and talk about, so what does this mean for our 612 folks who really don't have any of this background knowledge? So how can we leverage some of these? So you are amazing. Thank you so, so much. Any oh final God. thoughts for where can people find you? I know you've written a book. Do you want to plug some of that? I'm the worst. I always make you do this <laughs> oh uh, before gosh. we jump into game time. Sure. So you can find me, let's see, on, I guess, X oh. now. <laughs> um, <laughs> to be correct. It will always be Twitter, but however, let's see. I am Stuart underscore Amy K. And I have a book, Little Readers, Big Thinkers. It came out a few years ago, but it's all about close reading with primary grade students. So teaching them those skills to look at a text more closely and critically and do some deeper thinking with text. That's kind of what my book is about. Um, a little bit science of reading related, but not not so science of reading related, but more for <laughs> educators of K-1-2. That's who I am. Yeah. And thank you. This has been so great. It's such a noble thing. And I don't think people should feel bad that they don't know. They've never learned this because none of us have. I didn't either. So we didn't know what we didn't know. And now we're doing better that we know better. So yeah. it's really great to have a platform to do that. So thank you. Of course. You. And we are yeah, so grateful for, for you providing us this incredible wealth of knowledge so we can begin to know better. To help help us filter out the noise, because there's a lot of noise, like you mm -hmm. said, in our opening and helping support students learning how to read. There's that extra like pressure that if kids aren't reading by third grade, we're immediate, immediately behind. And so what you've shared with us really is digestible and can help us really filter out some of that chaos and noise and realize we're all in it to help kids learn how to read. Great. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully, you know, there will be less students in need after third grade. And as, as more mm -hmm. and more people get on board with, you know, that research piece, hopefully mm -hmm. we'll start seeing more success across the board. Open. Awesome. All right. So you ready for our game? Yes. <laughs> as ready as we'll ever be. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> So Emily, do you want to explain our game a little bit for our listeners? I am too? happy to. So whether you're just jumping in or not, this game we call Milk Margarita Malort. And this is a game that is meant to mimic the structure of a game that is often played with adult beverages that involves different things other than beverages that you could marry or kill or 
something else that we do not say on our podcast. <laughs> However, we've replaced this with these three beverages in so much as they they stand in for a similar idea. The milk is something that is healthy, good, awesome. Let's let's have a lot of that. The margarita is fun once in a while, good occasionally, maybe could dabble. And Malort. Amy, have you any experience with Malort? Have you ever? It's gotta go. <laughs> yeah. It's gotta go. <laughs> I mean, I don't think you can live in Chicago. Absolutely and not. not. With <laughs> Malort, but yes. How would you describe gonna... it? You try not to what think about flavor? those times. Uh, very bad. <laughs> I think I only smelled it. I don't think I even. Yeah. We've heard. Oh, man. We've heard what? Earwax, burnt tire. Chemical cleaner agents. Yeah, just like all kinds of gross things. It's You do not want anything to do with it. So basically whatever Mm -hmm. of the three things is on the chopping block is malort. They're returning back to our metaphor, which a whole ton of knowledge drop in in that episode, but we have been grounding this in Star Wars a little bit. So we are going to go through our knowledge of Star Wars, or lack thereof, and it's all right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm sure it goes as no surprise that (laughs) I am, I know Yoda, I I know lightsabers, (laughs) I know Princess Leia, but I'll try my best. How about you, Amy? I mean, I know a little bit more than that, but not, not very many. That's fair. That's fair. All, all you have to do is make a decision, and, and you may not even be asked to justify it. I think you just have to decide which of the three get what, and that's okay. So okay. I've kind of d- I've divided okay. them up into additions because I'm a humongous nerd. So the first one is basically the hottie edition <laughs> of Star Wars characters. <laughs> So Perfect. we are going to begin with our triad here, which is Han Solo, played by a young Harrison Ford, uh, young Obi-Wan Kenobi, not the uh, elder British statesman version, <laughs> but young. Alec Guinness. Yeah, it's fine. that's right. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. Casey, sir. Yeah, so yeah you yes. forgot his knighting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes. But we're talking Ewan McGregor here, right? Cute Ewan McGregor. Yeah. And then the Mandalorian as played by Pedro Pascal. So we'll give everybody a time, a, a minute to think that one through. I don't need any more oh, time. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Casey. Drop it on. Mine is so unbelievably easy. It's not even funny. So I'm going to start with the milk. I, back in the day, and still kind of do have very admirable feelings towards you and McGregor. I don't know if it's the Scottishness. I don't even... You put that man in anything and I will watch it. So (laughs) he is definitely the uh, milk for me. The margarita is Pedro Pascal because he that kind of closed off character in the Mandalorian. We'll take it. We'll break it down for a little bit and then he can just move along. And then so that would mean the Malort is Han Solo. Like, no thanks. <laughs> gotcha. I'll go next right. because I think Casey and I are completely opposites. <laughs> All right. <laughs> just, I, I know. Shocker. No. <laughs> hey, this is an opinion question, Jenny. There's no wrong uh, answer. Thankfully, here. I can hang maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was milking the young Harrison Ford. I mean, his feather cut, like the seven. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> he's he 
he's still i mean think about him now in yellowstone he's old and he could still hang like he could you know he's a classic i mean i was gonna go with pedro pascal Mm -hmm. for margarita but i'm gonna cheat because i prefer him on game of thrones i've not watched the mandalorian so he'll just be my margarita Ewan McGregor is cute, but he has a rat's tail. I'm out. I'm out with the rat's tail. (laughs) Done. That's true. Oh my god. All I can picture now is you (laughs) (laughs) I know. Kind of lost it when you said that. You weren't sorry. You weren't expecting it. Now there's some interesting vocabulary. (laughs) Yeah, right? Write this down. Okay. Let's see. I think my milk would be isn't Obi-Wan, doesn't he have, isn't he like wise? Yes. Or, okay, so I feel like he would be a good life partner, (laughs) right? Maybe he's my milk, regardless. (laughs) Mandalorian would be my margarita. I feel like he's very cute and would be like a fun party time friend <laughs> and so that means han has to go however yeah. like i don't hate him but i need yeah go someone's got him there's no room there's yeah no room. there's no room gotta be malort. the cup is and full. i think of like his yeah. outfit and like those memes that are like it's han solo season. Like, <laughs> with the vest and the boots and like everyone dresses oh my like God. han solo oh, right <laughs> yeah so everyone has their boots tucked into their pants mm-hmm. with their vest you know so it's it's time to move on from that. For real. <laughs> All right. I'll bring it home. Going my own way as as per usual. I have a bad habit, Amy, of always like doing something different than literally <laughs> So for my milk choice, I was going to go Maybe. with the Mandalorian as played by Pedro Pascal. First of all, he's a babe. Yes, Game of Thrones influenced my decision as well, so I'll own that. But that character has parenting skills. He's taking care of that little Yoda baby, and he's like really faithful to that project. And like he just seems like he'd be a great partner and like take care of the kiddos. Yeah, really loyal. Love that. I would give young Obi-Wan the margarita. You and McGregor, I share your feelings, Casey, so I absolutely get that. Mm-hmm. But I do think that like that set of movies was pretty annoying. I haven't watched the series Obi-Wan yet, and I should, because I think I'll probably get an even deeper appreciation for that character. But the the first trilogy, like the prequel trilogy, is not my fave. So Margarita there, just for him being the highlight of that trilogy. And then mm-hmm. Malort for, for Han again, and it's really just because that character is cocky and I don't like mm-hmm. snarky, mean guys. And super jealous, know. like insecurity galore. Yeah. Red yeah. flag. Yeah, Big exactly. Red flag. Em, I think we got time for one more. Do you want to do the, the gross, annoying character? Well, we, could, we, could do, Malort? we could do that one because I put a visual, <laughs> <laughs> visual aid on our script. Yes. <laughs> All right, so breaking it down, we have the horror show that is Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> oh, my God. I was hoping this would come because I know yes. who that is. We have super-duper irritating Jar Jar Binks. And we have the Sarlacc, which I don't even know if it's a character as much as it is a geographical feature, but it is literally a pit in the ground full of teeth and with a digestive system. So Okay. So let's go the exact opposite of what we just did. <laughs> this is amazing, and I love it. <laughs> and I already have mine. Yeah, again, it's very it. no-brainer. <laughs> Definitely for me, Jabba the Hutt is a kill, <laughs> is the Malort. Like, that. there is no, mm, no, servitude, slavery for women. You don't want me nah. in a bikini? Mm-mm. Like, no, not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think then Jar Jar is going to be the margarita because he can be there for a minute and then he's gone. He goes away. I feel like the Sarlacc is going to be really useful. Oh my God. So he would be my milk. Oh my like he just gets rid of the evidence. It would just be one easy. This is so- your moon tower. You you have your Sarlacc. <laughs> so that's that. That again, easy considering the option. I, I love it. Plus, he takes out everybody. The Sarlacc at the end. It's just it's wonderful. True. True. And he doesn't move. <laughs> Great. Just leaves just leave me alone. Perfect marriage. I mean, you could sit like right next to him. <gasps> yes, okay. I will go next again because Casey oh and gosh. I are again on absolute <laughs> <laughs> Not completely, but I'm gonna start with Malort just because I wanna keep talking about the Sarlacc. <laughs> That's my Malort because it looks like a butthole that has pinworms coming out of it. Like I just can't. I gotta you look. have to Google it. Yes. Google it. It looks like a big... Wait, okay. I gotta Google it. It's so gross. <laughs> Beauty is only skin deep. <laughs> like, so it. then Jar Jar oh. was my milk because oh he's the only one that I could just tolerate. And I guess Margarita because you could at least have a conversation with Jabba. <laughs> <laughs> While he's oh, trying no. to lick your face. <laughs> oh, man. That's great. Oh, gosh. Um, mine is surprisingly the same as Casey's, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if we're the same Sarlacc. Um, definitely Jabba's got to go. Like, he's just, he's got to go. Yeah. Jar Jar seems annoying, but like would be fun at a party. Yeah. So that would be the margarita. And then, I mean, Sarlacc, I feel like I could just like sit on the edge there. And... Be a good listener. Yeah, big like, brown eye. I mean, he wouldn't bother me. I could stay on the side. I could live my life. Perfect partner. Yeah. <laughs> Don't bother me, right? That is killing me. Okay. Yeah, I'm just going to do what I do here. But I will go with the near universal malording of Jabba the Hutt. He is disgusting and evil. <laughs> He's got. He's the whole package of Malort. Go away. Yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. The milk status is Gross. given to Jar Jar Binks as for Jenny's reasons because he's not evil. He's on the good guy's side. He's super annoying. I'd probably need a roll of duct tape at some point. But he's well-intentioned and actually has intentions and is not just a hole in the ground. And then the Sarlacc. <laughs> you could throw him in my Sarlacc. Yeah, right. Or, you know, I've got, I've got oh Sarlacc on a margarita basis. I can use it when I need it, but I don't have to right. sit there next to that nasty thing all the time. <laughs> just, you know, call in a favor when, when the necessity is present but mm, i don't think that's something i need as a part of my day-to-day life either <laughs> i hope oh touche good yes. point uh, but again amy thank you so much for tolerating the last 15 <laughs> minutes i had I so much it. fun it's been an awesome sport oh my gosh. <laughs> and, so fun. and for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us and our listeners we really appreciate of it of course of course thank you so much for inviting me on it was so fun good thank you
So for a taste of what's to come in our next episode, we're going to be looking more at the knowledge that Amy had shared with us in this one and really targeting secondary education like Casey had mentioned, talking about how are we going to apply this incredible wealth of knowledge that we've just started exploring on the science of reading and what this means to our secondary teachers and learners. So please join us. And that's a wrap on today's episode. It's always so fun to be behind the mics talking to you, our GLG fam. Thanks for choosing to come around to engage with our guild's content as we passionately continue to advocate for adult learners with transparent conversations about the world of education, impactful leadership, and the power of high-functioning teams. The Grounded Learners Guild is a production of Grounded Learning, LLC. If you'd like to connect, the power of the PLN continues. As always, you can find us on our website, thegroundedlearnersguild.com. While you are there, check out our past episodes, our socials, and learn how you can bring the GLG flavor to your next professional learning event. And yep, you know, your feedback is everything. Feedback is that powerful tool that allows us to be responsive to the topics that matter to you most. If you haven't yet already or are finding us for the first time, leave us a review and hit that subscribe button. You can find us wherever you stream. Thanks as always for tuning in to be a part of the Grounded Learners Guild. That's it for us, Casey, Emily, and me, Jenny, in today's episode. See you all at the next Guild meeting. And don't forget, in the meantime, do your best to stay grounded.